time again for Doc Shock, your addiction lifeguard podcast. I am Dr. Jacques DeBruckert, a psychologist, licensed professional counselor, and addiction specialist. If you are suffering from addiction, misery, trauma, whatever it is, I'm here to help. If you're in search of help to try to get your life back together, join me here at Doc Shock, your addiction lifeguard, the addiction recovery podcast. to be real clear about what this podcast is intended for. It is intended for entertainment and informational purposes, but not considered help. If you actually need real help, please seek that out. If you're in dire need of help, you can go to your nearest emergency room, or you can check into a rehab center, or call a counselor like me, and talk about your problems, and work through them. But don't rely on a podcast to be that form of help. It's not. It's just a podcast. It's for entertainment and information only. So let's keep it in that light, all right? Have a good time, learn something, and then get the real help that you need from a professional. In the last podcast, I talked about what Gabor Mate said about trauma as being the root of pretty much all addiction as he sees it, and I see it the same exact way. My professional experience has led me to understand that people who are stuck in that cycle of trauma where they haven't been cared for properly and they haven't healed from that trauma are lost in their addiction. And so that whole problem of what do we do with that trauma uh, really becomes significant to them because it's what they hold inside of them. They think there's something wrong with them and they really don't know how to deal with it beyond that point. So I wanted to talk today about step seven in the step process. Step seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. You know, when we walk into the 12-step process or recovery process, we are taught that we need to have some understanding of the significance of what has happened to us. At least that should be the direction that you go. And many times it is not because counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, doctors, friends, family members... Uh, sometimes they look at our addiction as being the problem that we're dealing with. And it is not the problem that we're dealing with. That is our coping mechanism to the problem we're dealing with. So if you walk into that process understanding that you have something wrong with you, which is what we're told when we present with addiction, then there is no hope. There is no change that can occur. And so the focus is on the behavior. So when we get through our recovery process, and if you are not a step person, I understand. Let's just, just use this as a framework to understand the recovery process. But that that asking for the shortcomings to be removed. You know, our arrogance is the thing that keeps us in addiction. And that is the thing that we can't really deal with very well when we're trying to figure out how to get into recovery is our addiction. Our addiction is the deceiver. That's the, the thing that drives us forward with what we are thinking that we're doing about recovery. So how do we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings if we don't have a him to ask? So hopefully you've gotten to the point where you understand that there is a, a higher power that directs us. And we have our own shortcomings. And it's interesting that this step comes before step eight and nine because 
we have our shortcomings and we have to try to understand that we have to have those relieved from us, but we hang on to them before we can approach somebody else. It's, I, I find it interesting that step seven is the uh, addressing of our own shortcomings, whereas step eight is starting to look at the shortcomings of other people. I don't know that professionally I have experienced only going the direction of relieving our own shortcomings as having happened first before trying to approach others. I think it is, but in that process of approaching others and trying to make amends where we can without it affecting us, one of the issues there is that the asking of forgiveness from others or trying to make amends for the things that we've done really requires us to look at what have we done to other people. But it's also, we have to look at ourselves. We're the, we're the perpetrators. That's what we're saying. So trying to figure out how do you do that without letting yourself go, without letting yourself feel the relief of that. The shortcomings must be removed. And this is where it becomes a spiritual thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's not a mental thing. This isn't mental toughness. Perhaps that's one of our shortcomings is we're mentally tough. We are. Everybody is to some degree. But addicts tend to be more mentally tough than others. I know that we're looked upon as being weak, but that's actually not true. We're not uh, weak. We're strong. Addicts are some of the strongest people I know. So when you say shortcomings, that means a weakness, right? That's how you could interpret that. But that's not a weakness. A shortcoming is not a weakness. A shortcoming is something that we do that we shouldn't do. It's something that we think that we shouldn't think. So really it becomes a question of are you willing to live a life where you can let those things go that you did that were so bad before and not be angry about them? Because that's what forgiveness is, right? It's the relieving of that feeling of responsibility for all the negative um, feelings attached to it. So the anger. So we're, we're letting go of the anger. We're not letting go of the history. So you're humbly asking him to remove your shortcomings. Really, it's about humility, not being humiliated, but humility. I am a bad person today. I'm not going to be a bad person tomorrow. The Christian sounding prayer of step seven was constructed in the 30s. And it's, of course, written in the language of the day. Um, you know, all of this that we're following is coming up on almost 100 years old. And it's still true today. It's really timeless. It's really funny. There are some things that are timeless. Uh, Seinfeld episodes tend to be timeless. Um the Wizard of Oz, it seems to be timeless. You know, there's entertainment that seems to be timeless. We listen to music all the time that comes from different eras, and we don't really realize how significantly different it is in time as we look back on things like music and entertainment, movies, magazines. And we can certainly look at things that are old and go, wow, that's really old. And we think we're disconnected from it. And it's interesting that we don't feel the same way about our feelings about what we've done. Freud believed that feelings and time were irrelevant to each other. Time was meaningless to feelings. You could conjure up those feelings that you felt a long time ago if you really thought about them strongly enough and really focused on them. So we hold on to our stuff. 
We hold on to those things that we did or didn't do that we should or shouldn't have done. And it doesn't seem to matter how old it is. I remember counseling people that were in their 80s and into their late 90s. And they really were so attached emotionally to the things that had occurred to them or that they had done. And as I worked with them, I realized that they were experiencing those things emotionally as if they were today, really with no significant difference between how they felt about them then and how they felt about them at the time they were telling me 60, 70, sometimes 80 years, 85 years ago. They still felt them very strongly. You can also feel the positive things as well. They felt the pride and and uh, excitement about things that had happened to them or they had done. I remember there was a gentleman I used to work with who he fought in World War II and he was one of the last cavalry members in the military, in the army um, at the time when they dismounted from their horses after going to uh, parade grounds and presenting themselves with their horses and dismounting for the very last time before they got in jeeps and drove away. And he said it was with great pride that he was a member of that last cavalry squad, wherever that was. I don't, I don't recall it, but it was interesting to listen to him tell that story. And he, he felt, I could see he felt it. And he felt that equally as much as the times when he had done things that had disappointed his children in the 1950s and it's in the 2000 what was it 2017 18 how many years ago that was so are we able to feel that stuff and be able to do something with it well we hang on to it and we torment ourselves and that's a lot of times why people still just hang into those addiction cycles because they just are torturing themselves with those things that they feel are unforgivable and many times because they were taught as children that they uh, are bad people because these things happen to them. That's what they believe. So if you can um, convince yourself, I guess, uh, that you're worthy of forgiveness, then you have to be able to have turn over your shortcomings to somebody, to something, somehow. And I see that struggle all the time. Slowing down your anger, slowing down your, your the pace of your upset is one way of doing it, but turning it over, turning it over to him, to him, a higher power, God. So how do we believe that God is there if we don't believe that God was looking out for us? And how do we believe in God when God left us damaged and scarred and stood idly by as those things were happening? And I, as a man, do not do not have an answer for that. And that is one of the big complexities of, of living and understanding that the presence of God in your life and how that can heal you. But at the same time, how come I didn't get, or how come I didn't have? So turning your shortcomings over to a God can be complex sometimes for people who have uh, struggle with faith because God let all these things happen. So why am I turning myself over to God for my shortcomings when he didn't protect me? Good question. Valid question. How do you do that? Well, I don't know why those things happen to me other than I know for a fact that we have free will. And so God allowed man to have free will and he used that free will to do horrible things. And God's going to sort that out, not through me, but around me. 
And it's not up to me to be judge, jury, and executioner uh, in in life because it's not my responsibility to figure all that out. That's up to God. So I'm going to leave it in his hands, and I'm going to try to be the best person I can because if I destroy myself, ultimately all I'm doing is destroying everybody around me. And I'm using my free will to be destructive. So I'm going to turn my shortcomings over to God because I have to to be able to heal from my coping mechanism of addictions. And so that step seven is really an important one, and it sets you up for that process of step eight and nine where you're making your list of people and the things that you, you know, that happened and that you did to them. And then step nine, trying to make amends for them. That's also part of the process of turning your shortcomings over because you're admitting, you're admitting to yourself, to another person and to God, what you've done and recognizing it. And the words that I try to persuade people to use when they think about step nine, when they're approaching somebody to make amends is the following. I want you to know that I know that what I did was wrong. See, that part of that admission is is in keeping with scriptural process of admission. You know, you, you, you're apologizing for something, but yet you won't admit what it was that you did. It kind of sounds very empty, doesn't it? But when you know what you did and you can admit what you did, and you can say, I am asking for forgiveness because I want you to know that what I did was wrong and I wish I could do something about it, but I can't. But I hope that within that admission of understanding that what I did was wrong, that you can find it within yourself to forgive me. And so that feeling of being able to forgive yourself really is you saying to God, take this away from me. And then I don't have a need to continue to cope with uh, very negative kinds of coping mechanisms like shooting up heroin or fentanyl or drinking myself to death. And so give that a try. Understand that there is a hymn to turn this over to. The immediacy of detox and the need for detox is the first step in the recovery process. And it's one that's becoming more and more difficult to access because of shortages of bed space and availability. And one of the places that I use quite frequently in my area in the Mid-Atlantic is called Maryland House, which is part of the Delphi Behavioral Health Group. They are a treatment facility that can help with detox and transferring you from detox as a bed-to-bed transfer to your treatment center. Delphi has 15 different facilities around the country. Massachusetts, California, New Jersey, Florida, and California. But their detox facility, the Maryland House, located in Maryland just outside of BWI Airport, is a multi-bed facility that does detox only. And once you're completed with detox at Maryland House, they can transfer you to your residential treatment center of choice. They also have residential treatment centers as well, but they will detox you at Maryland House to go on your journey to recovery as that first step. So if you're looking for detox or you need to help 
with detox process, please reach out to them. You can reach them at 844-359-7728. 844-359-7728. They do have insurance coverage over most insurances, and that telephone number is open 24 hours a day. So call them today if you're in need of detox or you're looking for a detox center and you have been turned away, like many of my clients, from detox because there is no bed space availability. In 2008, as an example of an understanding of the significance of trauma and how difficult it is for mental health professionals to get their arms around it, in 2008, there was a presidential task force on post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma in children and adolescents. And in 2008, not that long ago, PTSD in children uh, this this group was tasked with um, studying PTSD in, in adults and as evidenced by birth of a new scientific discipline, developmental transitional neuroscience. It is clear that we learn from research involving adults may not necessarily be applicable to children and adolescents. So they were starting to look at children exposed to trauma. In 2008, in 2008, they came up with the uh, factors that they found from their research. Estimated rates of witnessing community violence range from 39 to 85%. An estimated rate of victimization going up to 66%. Rates of youth exposure to sexual abuse, another common trauma, are estimated to be 25 to 43%. Rates of youth youths exposed to disasters are lower than for other traumatic events, but with when disasters strike, large proportions of young people are affected. Children and adolescents have likely comprised a substantial portion of the nearly 2.5 billion people affected worldwide by disasters in the past decade. Now, understand, they're looking at this in 2008. It wasn't that long ago. Many f- of the reactions displayed by children and adolescents who have been exposed to trauma events are similar or identical to behaviors that mental health professionals see on a daily basis in their practice. These include the the development of new fears, separation anxiety, particularly in young children, sleep disturbance, nightmares, sadness, loss of interest in normal activities, reduced concentration, decline in schoolwork, anger, somatic complaints, and irritability. And the article from the APA, the American Psychological Association, goes on and on and on. How could you help? And the help really was about recognition, um, <laughs> support the child and the family and community by drawing on existing strengths and resources of the child, family, and community. Mental health professionals can help reduce stress and foster the use of existing adaptive coping strategies by parents and children. So it's just it's recognition. They're talking about recognition. Provide education about trauma reactions and hope for full reco- hope for full recovery. So there's no I mean in the in the recovery community we know we've known forever that it's about trauma. But the treatment community, especially the APA, they're they're advocating for trauma-focused treatment for those who do not fully recover. 
they're advocating for trauma. They're not mandating. It's just bizarre to me. Then they say what we still need to learn. Understand the variety and complexity of children's reactions, traumatic events, and how reactions unfold over time. It's not until we get to the very bottom of the article that we start to see in the last, what is it, three paragraphs, uh, that this increasing our repertoire of evidence-based treatments for children and families and knowing which type of treatment is optimal for different individuals or groups. The interventions developed and evaluated need to understand how to match the type, intensity, and duration of treatment to the needs of the children, but it doesn't really give any significant information as to what that is. Now, this article was written in 2011, even though the research was from 2008. And they just talk about evidence-based treatment, evidence-based. So if you're not recognizing that trauma is evident and you can't recognize that addiction is the outcome in an adult who suffered significant trauma, all you're looking at is did the child somehow recover from their trauma? Did they recover from their trauma? I don't know. How do you, what do you call recovery? When somebody's sexually abused, what's recovery? They seem to be happy and doing well in school. It's just, so it's just shocking how far behind the clinical world is. And and in that last podcast, Gabor detailed that very well and explained it very, very well. And so when we go through, it's really interesting. When we go through the step process written in the 30s, we talk about things that we've done to other people. That the perspective was that we became destructive around people. And we became destructive with ourselves. But even with that, there still was very little to no recognition that something happened to us. And that's why we became an addict. It's what we did to other people in our addiction. What we did to other people in our addiction was cause huge problems. Yes. But the, the huge problems that caused us to be an addict are really what we're trying to teach people to deal with. So trying to figure out how to do that and re- letting go of the things that were the things that caused you so many problems is really, really a huge deal. And we have to figure out ways to be able to relieve the pressure and the pain that we walk around with every day within ourselves and find ways to to make things better for us. So as a Christian, how do we do that? How do we look for ways to be relieved from these things that have caused us problems when we are asking for these things to be lifted from us, knowing that we walk around feeling guilty. So I was trying to find something that seemed relevant. And Matthew 4, 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. That to me was kind of poignant as as a scriptural passage because if he's... If, if he's being led into the forest to be tempted by the devil, I think that's kind of what it is with addiction. Addiction is controlling us, and it's controlling what we're doing and how we're doing it. So if we're led down that path, 
and seduced into the enemy treating us as if we are damaged and we see ourselves as damaged, then how are we ever to recover? So turning over that is resisting that idea that we're going to be tempted, tempted by the devil to, to keep it in us, tempted in a way to uh, keep us crippled. You know, um, those of us who have suffered from traumatic events in our lives, we're not crippled. We're not, we have scars. Those scars are reminders of, of what we have survived. And that crippling becomes less crippling when we don't see it as being crippled, but as something that allowed us to gain some strength. So the temptation is to walk away from that and feel like I am less than, I am not good, and turn that over. That's your shortcoming, that you're irre- irrevocably damaged. You cannot be changed. Your surviving through that was only for just future torture. Nothing more. And that is a lie. And that is the lie that the enemy wants us to believe and to understand. That we are crippled and we are damaged and we are never going to change. But I say you can change. You can repair the shortcomings. Let those shortcomings go. Find a different way to walk a different path so you can heal and be whole again. That's it for this episode of Doc Shock, your addiction lifeguard. Wanted to thank you for listening and hope that you got something from this podcast. I am Dr. Jacques de Bruckert, an addiction specialist, and these podcasts are meant for entertainment and education. And I hope you were able to learn something. So tune in to the next episode of Doc Shock, your addiction lifeguard. We're going to explore more topics related to addiction and recovery. So always remember that it doesn't matter how many times you fall down. What really matters is how many times you get back up. And it's only that one last time that you've got to get back up. So let's keep on the sane, stable, and sober side and work on our recovery every day. And if you need further help, you can reach out to me at wellspringmindbody.com through my website. And remember, it's always important to work on ourselves and our recovery and our traumas. So find somebody that can help you. And I have enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.